In Colorado Springs or down south somewhere. That was some southern gospel singing right there, wasn't that? That was so fun. Thank you, Karen and Deb. Well, good morning. Question for you this morning. When was the last time that you were on a diligent search for something? When were you searching out for something? Perhaps it was as uh, recent as this morning. Some of you couldn't find your car keys. Anyone? Were you searching for that? Boy, it's really dark here, isn't it? Is, it, is there a reason why it's so dark? Are the lights out? No, the lights are not on. All right. Um, how about yesterday? Perhaps you were on a deep search that you were on Google and you had some important fact that you needed to, to discover and you jumped to a search engine and started to search something like um, what was Luke Skywalker's original name and why did George Lucas change it? Or perhaps that was me that was searching that. So just right, the Google, how often you go to a search engine and look for something and find, perhaps it was this past week. And you were at the mall, or on Facebook Marketplace, or Amazon Prime, and you were, you were searching for a gift, a piece of furniture, home decor, or a car for one of your daughters going off to college. Oh, that was me again. Uh, how, if you think about it, we are engaged in a lot of searches, oftentimes on a daily basis, correct? Um, also, there's not even to mention the deeper searches in life, the search for meaning and purpose and significance, the, the search for God, the search for happiness and healing and wholeness. I'm going to talk to you this morning about what I would call a, a very deep search a search that is really, I would say, I've come to call it the divine search because it's a search that God is actually on. Did you know that God searches? He is a God who searches. In fact, there's a couple of different places in Scripture that it, that it talks about the Father, the Lord who is searching, who is seeking, who is looking. A number of weeks ago when uh, we were um, in worship, I talked about John 4 when Jesus said to the woman at the well, we are talking about worship and he said, yet a time is coming and has now come when, um, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. In fact, Jesus was revealing to us that, that the Father is on the lookout. He's looking at this world and, and he's longing that there's some of us who get it, who understand that would enter the category of true worshipers, that we would get and know the revelation of who God is and worship him as in truth and that we'd also understand that he is spirit and we have spirit within and true worship is when that spirit is connecting with his spirit. Some of us 
were true worshipers this morning. I pray that I'm one of those, that I'm growing in that. There's another place in Scripture that tells us Jesus was uh, giving, talking about a parable on prayer, and he's talking about the persistent widow who is persistent in going after this unjust judge, and she's persisting for, for justice again and again. He's trying to illustrate. He's saying those who want to really pray, be persistent, go after it, be bold. And then he just has this interesting tagline at the very end. He says this, however, when the Son of Man comes, talking about himself in the third person, will he find faith on the earth? That one little verse, I was like, wow, when, when Jesus at his second coming, he's going to come. And what is he looking for? What is he seeking? Faith. Faith. Made me think of all the times when he was walking physically on earth nearly 2,000 years ago, and he engages with people and asks questions that he knows the answer to, but he was drawing out faith. And right now, he's looking for those who will but trust him. In those moments that we don't know what's before us, we don't understand everything, he's looking for the faithful. This morning, I'm going to talk about a similar search, but this divine search that we're going to talk about looks a little bit different than the, the search, the seeking of God for true, true worshipers and the seeking of God for those filled and full of faith. In fact, this invitation, this search, this divine search that God is on is somewhat unique because there is a profound invitation from the Lord to you and me to join this seek, this divine adventure, to, to be a part of what God is looking for. And, and I'm gonna just share with you this morning too that I, there's somewhat of a sadness in my heart because I think when I reveal the, the divine search, if you haven't figured it out yet, um, most Christians know about this divine search. In fact, many Christians know we're called to be a part of it. And yet often, I would say the majority of us are not in a meaningful way receiving the invitation from God to be a part of the search. In fact, I think Jesus this very morning will will really give us a compelling argument about this search. And yet many of us are not engaged. And so this morning and this series is about how we might get engaged, get out of the stands and into the ball game. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your help. We for whatever reason, this particular search, so many of us, including myself, are not engaged 
as we should be. So Holy Spirit, have your way in our midst, Lord. Amen. This search is talked about throughout the Old and New Testament, but there is a particular chapter where Jesus cranks up this invitation. It's found in the Gospel of Luke. Would you pull out your Bibles? There's some Bibles located in the seats in front of you. If you didn't bring yours this morning, I encourage you to bring it every Sunday. And we are going to be looking at the famous chapter of Luke chapter 15. Turn with me there, and let me just read the first two verses to you and give you a little bit of the context of what's going on with Jesus. It says, this is Luke chapter 15, verse 1, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let's just pause for a moment and notice the two audiences that are there. First is mentioned the, the tax collectors and the sinners. These were the outcasts. These were the broken. These were the, the sinful. These were the ones that heard from their religious leaders and their cultures and for most people, that they were huge disappointments to their friends and to their family and to God. And yet these people were gathered around Jesus because they didn't experience Jesus as they experienced almost everybody else in their culture. They didn't experience Jesus shunning them and dismissing them and judging them. In fact, they experienced kindness from Jesus. In fact, probably several of those that were, were gathered around close, perhaps it was Jesus' original uh, apostles, the 12, they were the, the, the closest circle, but then right there were those maybe that had been healed by Jesus previously. They had experienced the, the, the goodness and the healing nature of God, and they were healed, and they're like, I'm hanging with this guy, and they got in as close as they could. But then there was an outer circle. And I would call that article, uh, outer circle the religiously righteous. They were those that crossed their religious T's and dotted their religious I's. They had life uh, nailed down to how they believed God wanted them to live. And now they were standing. I mean, Jesus was speaking with authority and he was healing, so they're kind of paying attention to who this guy is. And yet at the same time, they were not only judging the broken and the sinner and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, but they allowed that judgment to jump just a little bit farther to Jesus himself and say, doesn't he know? Guilt by association. He can't be from God. I don't know if the broken and the sinners could feel their distaste for them, if they could were experience their judgment from behind them. But Jesus could feel it. And we're told he tells these three stories. I love when Jesus tells stories. I just try and get out of the way when he tells stories. 
tells these three stories in response to the two segments in the audience. Just read these stories one at a time. He says, look at verse three in chapter 15 of Luke. He says, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and the neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Does Jesus believe there's any righteous who don't need to repent? No, so don't miss the irony in that last statement, right? I'm not gonna be able to do justice to all three of these stories. I would encourage you to read them later this week and reflect and listen to the spirit on them. But I'm just gonna ask, I believe that they're pointing us in one primary direction and application and yet each of the three stories, though they are similar in many ways, have a little bit of nuance. So I'm going to just ask a simple question in each parable and then talk a little bit about the nuance. First question is super easy. No cup of coffee for you if you get this. Who does the shepherd, the shepherd who goes and searches the one, represents someone in real life? Who is that person? Jesus or God? Yes, we just finished a series on he is our good shepherd. So super easy question, yes? So the shepherd represents God the Father. Now, a little bit of this nuance in this story is that if people would have been hearing, especially shepherds, they might have muttered and said, that's, that's bad shepherding. You don't, you don't leave the 99 for one in the open country. That's, that's a little dangerous. That's perhaps not good. Why would Jesus include that detail in this little tiny parable? Perhaps he was wanting to reveal something to us. I think what he was wanting to reveal is this the sacrificial, even risky priority of heaven. He's revealing the agenda of heaven, not back then, but in this moment. If you think about heaven, Jesus saying heaven has an agenda. Heaven has a priority. If you put it in business terms, heaven is defining their win. Is anyone in business, right? How do you define a win? It's a good question. Businesses ask, what does that look like? How about in, in military terms that Jesus is revealing the mission directive in the military? 
He's saying, yes, heaven does have an agenda, does have a mission directive. It is defining a win. And it's leading those who are far from God, lost. The inner circle, back to him. Can you imagine if we stayed with the the military analogy just for a moment? Don't want to push that too far. But can you imagine Jesus and God the Father, let's do the whole Trinity, and the Holy Spirit over, maybe he's hovering over the map of the world, okay? And and they're, they're planning, they're discussing, and they're wrestling. I believe that they would be talking about some of the hardest and most painful things in our world. They would be talking about poverty. How can we work? How can we inspire? How can we work through nations and leaders and people to alleviate Poverty. They would be looking at uh, the, the sex trafficking. They would be looking at the judicial systems that are filled with injustice. They would, be, they would be looking at hunger. They would be looking at all of these things. And yet, over that board is one primary mission objective that connects to every one of the greatest pains and sufferings of our world. And that is that people are far from God. And when people are far from God, all of that is a byproduct of their lives. That they would know, if they want to make a profound difference in, say, the judicial system, that if they can lead the judges... And those in authority to a personal relationship with Christ, if they can lead them to that connection with their creator, then they will transform the judicial system of that particular country. Yes? That if they can get this dictator in, in, in this whatever particular country, if they can get that dictator to somehow hear the gospel and know that he has a God who loves them and transforms them from the inside out, then it's a matter of time that that country is transformed. I was watching a news station. They had, I I have a favorite Catholic bishop. I mention him from time to time. Father Barron, Robert Barron, leads Word on Fire Ministries. And he's just recently wrote, written a, a book on letters to a suffering church. I love that he's really addressing the most difficult parts of the church, sexual scandal. But they had him to talk about the shootings in our nation that happened and transpired this past week. And he was saying, he was talking about what can we do, how can we, how can we connect? And he was saying, yeah, there's, there's a variety of things that we can do. I'm not trying to get political on you at all. There's a variety of things and steps and We should be having that discussion, not in hateful ways, but how do we address this? How do we join with God? And in the midst of that, um, Bishop Barron uh, said this, just want to bring out the spiritual side that undergirds everything. It's the spiritual connect that leads us to empathy for others. It's the connection with God that leads us to honor the dignity of each person. 
It's it's faith that leads us to to connect our lives to a, a greater meaning and not wrestle in isolation and hate. I loved how he put that. I was thinking of Israel, the nation, and how if you read, especially the prophets, God is speaking through the prophets and he is railing on his people because of the widows and the orphans. He's saying, this is injustice. It's not okay. And he, he's shouting to, to the people about that they're greedy and they're, they're focused and, and their courts are, are not giving justice. And yet at, at the heart of all of those problems in his nation, he says this, Ezekiel 34, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself, this is God the Father speaking, I myself will, will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will search for the lost and bring them back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Looking over the map of the world, God sees all of those things. And yet he knows that the heart is inviting lost people back to God. I'm going way too long on each individual story, so let me get back to the next parable. Verse eight, look at verse eight with me. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One simple question from this parable. Who is the woman? Who does the woman represent that's searching for the lost coin? God. Actually, I think you could go both ways, so hold on to that. I'll come back to that. But yes, I believe it's God. He's on the search for this lost coin. And I love the nuance of that phrase at the the very end. It says, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What Jesus is doing through this second parable, though very similar, of course, to the lost sheep parable, he is really revealing the greatest joy of heaven. He's, in fact, going even beyond that. You could say it in this way, that he is revealing a little bit of the culture of the kingdom 
of heaven. Do you ever think about that? We have a culture of our family. We have a culture of our church. Uh, um, nations have cultures, right? We have all these different cultures. Have you ever thought of what is the culture of heaven? What would it be like? Like, would there be sarcasm in heaven? Would that be a part of their culture? I'm really hoping there still is. There's gotta be some redemptive purposes. So we don't know. I would argue there's a healthy biblical sarcasm. But anyways, I, I digress, right? But what he's saying, a part of the culture of the kingdom of heaven is joy. There's delight. You see that that's, that's God who's that shepherd. And what does he find do when he finds the sheep? He calls friends and family, says, let's party, right? Hey, what does he do when he finds that coin? I mean, isn't that like a little bit ridiculous? I mean, if you, have you ever found a $20 bill and did you, you didn't call friends and family. He, he's like, he's using this parable, he's pushing us, he goes, yeah, that happens. That one coin calls the friends, the woman does, and says, rejoice, who would like to add joy to their life? Boy, I know I would. And he's saying, do you know that there is a source of joy that's greater than anything else in heaven and you can partake in it? It's bringing lost people to God. All right, the longest of the stories. Look at verse 11. Again, I'd love to unpack each of the stories further, but I want us to feel the power of all three. It says this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. You see, usually... Someone divides their estate when they die, right? The, the younger son got impatient. The old guy was just continuing, still, still, he's waiting. So finally he just asks, right? Father says, okay. Gives it to him. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living, scandalous living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the country, the whole country, and he began to be in need and want. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. Remember, pigs aren't cult, uh Kosher in the Jewish culture. So this was about the lowest of the low positions that the younger son could have. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. No one was kind. No one had mercy on him. When he came to his senses, it was just a matter of time, he looks up from the, the pig slop. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? 
and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. I think there's a true repentance there that Jesus means in this story. He knows he's messed up. He knows he's been hurtful. So he's going to ask for kindness from his father, but not to to get back to his status as a son. He gave that up. Maybe his dad will just let him be a servant. That's all he wants. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His, his father must have been looking, waiting, peering in the open country. And he was filled not with anger, not with judgment, but compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son, he had a prepared speech, didn't he? Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He has more, but the father interrupts him. But the father... But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. I told you they party in heaven, right? They're they're partying for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now the parable does not end there. How many audiences, types of uh, the audience members were there? Two. And I think of the, the broken and the sinners. And they were delighting in this story, but who else was there? The religiously righteous. You know, the folks like you and me. And it goes on, it says. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called out one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father. Here we get a little bit of the perspective. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I wonder if it hurt the father's heart to hear life in his household and slaving Boy, he was religiously righteous. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You can hear the 
the bitterness dripping from the older son's lips. But when this son of yours, he's not my brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, bringing dishonor to you and to me and the household comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Just hear, what are you thinking? The father says, my son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. He's saying, there's an abundance here. Why aren't you living in the abundance? But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Simple question. No cup of coffee for you. What? Who's the father in the parable represent? It's easy when all the questions have the same answer, isn't it? That's why no cup of coffee for you. Do you see what Jesus is doing is all three parables are are talking about the divine search and and what this final story, this final parable is, is so poignantly revealing is the heart of God, the heart of the Father, So often we see God's heart as something different, as judgmental of disappointing with us. Can you imagine the sinners that are hearing Jesus going, is God really like that? Is he really celebrating? Has he been looking for us? Will he not just give us the the hired hand status, but he, he invites us back to our position as his sons and daughters? But then the nuance, I think in particular of this final parable, is that it ends unresolved. Do you get the moment? So this this parable is, is sharing the heart of God, the heart of the ruler of heaven. Isaiah 65, I love this passage again reveals the the heart of the father I've revealed myself to those who did not ask for me I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call on my name I said here I am I here am I all day long I've held out my hands what a picture of the ruler of heaven of God the Father holding out his hands to you and me, an abstinent people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. He's holding his hands out not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. And the nuance of this parable is that it ends unresolved. Think about it in your mind, right? Did the parable end in the celebration and the partying? No. 
it ends outside of the party. And who's there? The father and which son? The, the younger son's in the party. He's partying. He's like, oh, I can't believe it. Woo! But outside the party, who's that? The older son. And, and, and he's got bitterness flowing from his mouth. And he's got the father saying, don't you? Will you come and join the party? And here's the thing. We don't know what the older son decides. We don't know if he gathers up his stuff and leaves. We don't know if he has a change of heart and meaningfully embraces his wayward brother. Friends, I think this is an invitation not to only the Pharisees and the religious leaders. It's an invitation to you and me that we would meaningfully engage in this divine search. That, that we would direct time and energy and focus and passion and longing and prayers. Why is it that for so many of us, and I want you to know that I am not judging you, I share in this. Why do I struggle to meaningfully engage in the divine search? Why do I forget? Why do I get so wrapped up? And at the end of the day, I realize at the end of the week, at the end of the month, I've not meaningfully engaged and received the invitation from my Father in heaven to enter the celebration, to join the search party. Now, I was thinking about what are barriers in my own life? What are barriers in your lives that keeps us from engaging the divine search. And for whatever reason, in my awkward way of thinking, of course, I immediately thought of Family Feud. No, Family Feud is not responsible for the lack of evangelism in the Church of Jesus Christ. But I was thinking, if Family Feud ever asked this question, what are the main barriers to Christians like you and me from engaging meaningfully in evangelism and sharing our faith. I thought of, I didn't take a survey, I, I did think of five primary reasons. And there's a free cup of coffee if you get number one. All right. What would be, what's that? Pride. Kevin, come on down. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. 
Think about right now what would be uh, what would be barriers to evangelism? Fear. Okay. Did I put that up there? No. Can you do the X on that? Let's see. There we go. What else? Oh, self-centeredness. Survey says, even though I didn't take a survey. Yes, number four. Evangelism is almost a purely self-sacrificial event. And so often... I'm so wrapped up in my own things that I'm not thinking about anyone else. Do you agree? Do you struggle with that barrier a little bit? What else? It's another one. Timidness and disobedience. Do we have any of those? No. There we go. All of these are good reasons. What else? Pride. Pride, time. Did you say time? All right. Time or being too busy. Number one, yes. But David's on staff, so he does not get a free cup of coffee. <laughs> All right, let's just talk about the other five. Um, number five, not really sure Jesus is the only way. Statistically speaking, within the evangelical church, more and more people are saying we think it's wrong to share a faith. I think Jesus would disagree. I think Luke 15 would disagree. Uh, we got number four. Number three, don't want to be weird. Don't want to be that guy. Right? That's... That's one of my big ones. I, I don't want to be weird. I'm already pastor. They already label me as weird enough. I don't want to be weird. Number two, don't know how. What does that look like? Can you relate to all those barriers? Friends, I, I don't know a particular church save one or two that are really leading lost people to Christ. I know a lot of churches that are helping nominal Christians grow in their faith, and that's a good ministry. I'm not judging that. That's a valuable ministry. It's an important ministry. But where are the churches that are meaningfully reaching out to those who are far from God? Part of our seven-year vision is that we would become a church that is doing that in meaningful ways, that our lives are connected with the divine search. I'm just gonna uh, share this one passage of scripture and I'm not going to, to, to preach the rest of the message. I'm gonna hold on to it. And we'll, we'll look at it for the weeks coming. But I want to bring up this passage of Scripture. And this passage of Scripture has made such a difference to me personally. It comes from Titus 3. It says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, 
He saved us. Who's Paul talking about in that first? He's talking about Jesus. He's equating Jesus with the kindness of God. He's saying to experience Jesus was to experience the the Father in that parable. It was to experience, some of you have heard me share about that that Hebrew word of chesed. I love that word. It's, It's grace, it's mercy, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's love, loving kindness. That's the essence of the Father. Jesus is the essence of the Father. The second person of the Trinity, to experience Jesus is to experience the Father. As I've been praying, Lord, how do I meaningfully engage with this divine search on a daily basis in my life? I thought of the word kindness. I went to this scripture. It's uh, found in Galatians. Says uh, this. No, I'm sorry. It's Philippians. Um, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And I thought, was my presence. Who I am, tell anybody that the Lord is near. Gentleness or kindness. What if the starting place of evangelism, of what we find so difficult to do, what if we started with the simple idea of being kind to others. Would you be willing to start there with me? Would you be willing to to try and be like the father in the parable? Would you be willing to, to try and be like Jesus? If Jesus is the appearance and the revelation of the kindness of the Father to this broken world. Would you start with me in that place of kindness? Yes? We're gonna unpack this as we go in the next couple weeks. I believe that really to love a broken world well starts here. Not on the outside. It starts with the kindness of God, the love of God being poured out into our lives. And so the overflow tells people that the Lord is near.
Would you pray with me? So Lord, just thinking that evangelism can be one of the most confusing and intimidating aspects of being Christian. And Lord, I, I feel like we've, we've mucked it up so much. We, we, we've missed your heart in this. Lord, would you minister deep within our hearts this morning? Would you pour out your kindness? Lord, we remember when we were part of the crowd that were far from you. Lord, we remember in your kindness, you you brought people into our lives that were courageous enough to share you with us. They were part of the divine search. So Lord, would you teach us to remember your kindness, to experience your kindness, to drink deeply of your kindness daily. And would you teach us to be your kindness in this harsh and many times brutal world. And Lord, would you teach us to be kind, especially to those who we disagree most with, (laughs) especially those whose lives don't look like us, whose political beliefs don't look like us. Lord, would you soften our hearts especially for those, for those family members, those friends that we've stood in our religiously righteous perspectives and looked down. Would you soften our hearts for those people We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Can we stand together and respond with this final song?